Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 89, God of Wrath. A couple of days ago, you listened to, or at least I released, part one of my recent debate with Joshua Whips, otherwise known as Razor's Kiss from the ChoosingHats.com blog. Uh, in that debate, I defended the thesis that the final punishment of the risen wicked will be annihilation, the permanent end to the conscious existence of the entire person, and my opponent denied, representing instead the traditional view of hell. Uh, in that debate, or in that first part of the debate, you, list, you heard part. Uh, sorry, you heard the opening statements that we each made in our first rebuttals to one another. Uh, my argument was that the language of texts historically used to support the traditional view of hell, uh, in their context and within the analogy of scripture, far more support uh, annihilation as the final punishment of the wicked. Uh, and my opponent's argument was that our view cannot account for the biblical what the Bible says about the nature of death, what the Bible says about the nature of God, uh, and what the Bible says about the nature of the atonement, uh, and some other uh, arguments as well. Uh, I responded to those arguments in my first rebuttal, and he responded to mine, and it was at that point that we took a break, uh, and when we returned, we began our first round of cross-examination, beginning with Joshua asking me questions, and that's where we'll pick up today. God of pride, God of justice, we have burned your wrath and judgment, but you poured it out on your son, yes you poured it out on your son. Okay, now we're back from our break, and we're into our cross-examination section. Um, Joshua is first. He will be um, posing cross-examination questions to Chris, and this portion will last uh, 15 minutes. So start when you're ready, Joshua. All right. Um, my first question, Mr. Date, is what does wisdom consist of? Uh, I would believe, I think that wisdom uh, is God being wise. It is I don't even know how to answer the question. It's, it's, it's God being wise. Okay. Um, do you agree with Calvin that our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and ourselves? I don't at this point have any reason to object to that. I haven't studied the Calvin statement before. Okay. Do you affirm the, uh, the perspicacity per of Scripture, the clarity of it? My understanding of that word is that it's perspicuity, but if I'm wrong, yeah. either way, yeah, I, I do affirm it. Okay. Is the nature of man taught in Scripture? Yes. Can you tell me then, sir, why you're agnostic to the nature of man, whether he be body and spirit or body alone? Because while previously a dualist, having uh, interviewed Glenn Peoples, for example, um, I don't find the positive case for either side compelling enough to yet come down off the fence. Okay. Now, now, just to be clear, I don't mean to say that Scripture doesn't answer that question. I just okay. mean to say that I have not yet seen what the answer to All that right. question is. That's fine. Thank you. With such a, um, 
with that particular ignorance as to the nature of man, how would one proceed or presume to affirm what either the life or death of that man entails, and what would such an affirmation even mean? Oh, I think it's very simple. Uh, while I don't have not yet seen Scripture answer to the question as to man's constitution, I do think Scripture makes it very clear what a dead body is. And Jesus says that what a dead body is will also be true of a dead soul. I see. So what, in your agnostic view, is intended to be conveyed with kill the body and destroy both body and soul in hell? When you stated versus Diaz, and I quote, that Jesus tells us that both body and soul will be rendered lifeless and unconscious in the second Ghana, especially after noting that James 2.26 says that the body without the spirit is dead. Right. I'm, I'm being strategic. I recognize that most of my listeners are probably dualists, and so I'm gearing my arguments primarily toward them. Physicalists don't need to be uh, convinced of annihilation. Okay, how do you how do you even make the 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 distinction between the two if you don't know yourself? Because even though I don't know which position scripture teaches, I do know that these two positions exist and okay. what they entail. Okay, but do you know what the difference between a body and a soul is? I know how dualism defines that difference and I know how physicalism defines I, that difference. That's fine. Uh, do you know? Uh, it's possible that in a self-deceptive way I do, but in terms of my uh, recognition of what that is, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know yet. Okay. Um, on your show, Joey Deere stated, think of how an atheist views death and what happens when we die. Then went on to say, that's essentially what we're saying happens to people. You can be heard in the background and sounding affirming to me. Do you agree? Is that what you're saying happens to people? In the second death, yes. Okay. Let me share a quote. We owe our lives to death. It is the salt to moments and saves them from being tasteless. That's from Fragments of Leucippus, 8.14.2. If we are to view death as an atheist does, isn't this the result? The unnatural seems to be exchanged for the natural and thus to be preferable, the desirable, and the moral. Isn't this the result? I don't follow your question. I apologize. Okay. If we are to view death as an atheist does... Don't we, uh, don't we have to view it as something natural and something, uh, in, in effect good? No, quite the contrary. I think that many atheists, uh, are terribly fearful of the idea of death and they would say that it's a bad thing. Okay, um, would you, have you read, um, on James Anderson's, um, article on the, um, on the incoherence of the atheist view on death where they think that it's both good and bad at the same time? No. Okay, thank you. Do we think of death as those who have no hope do? Can you give us a coherent reason why we should be agreeing with the biblical fool on what the nature of death is? Yeah, because we don't agree, I don't agree with the biblical, uh, with the uh, atheist view of the first death. I'm using it as an illustration to uh, demonstrate what I think the scripture teaches about the second death. I see. And, 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 and let me follow up with that really quickly by saying that I don't think that every imaginable worldview is in every imaginable way wrong. I think that many worldviews have nuggets of truth that only the Christian worldview, um, whereas only the Christian worldview contains all of them. I see. Can you tell us what the distinction is between practice and principle? Uh, no, I don't think that I can. Okay. Can you... Let's give practice as the um, what someone does and principle as what someone thinks he should do. Okay. We both share um, – would you agree that practice which does not accord with principle is inconsistent? Yes. Okay. Uh, we both share an admiration for James White's apologetics ministry as I understand. Uh, can you explain what he means when he says theology matters? 
Yeah, I think that what one uh, believes, and I don't think it's simply theology, I think it's worldview as a whole, uh, what we believe will have an effect on how we live, uh, even in ways that we don't always necessarily anticipate. And so if we believe certain things, they can have devastating consequences, even if we don't realize it. I see. So I have a quote here from James. If we believe the radical claims of the Christian faith, then how can we engage in seeking a neutral common ground with a rebel sinner against God? Because either a person is a rebel against God or is submitted to God. Those are the only kinds of people there are. There is no neutrality in that area. You explain how we are to reconcile being told on the one hand that you don't know what the nature of man is, then on the other hand, seemingly being told that we should be thinking of the nature of death and by extension the nature of man on a neutral common ground with the unbeliever. I think that the uh, premises of your question are false. I don't think that we should uh, reach or operate from neutral ground on the definition of death. I, as I explained in my rebuttal, I conclude what the nature of the second death is based on the text of Scripture. I just happen to use the atheist understanding of death as an illustration of that. Okay, don't you um, don't you take what the second death is um, as uh, as being likened to the first death, but body and soul? Uh. In the sense that elements of the second death include elements of the first, yes, but that doesn't mean that they're 100% uh, analogous. I see. Here's another quote from the same material from James. That's why I believe to be consistent with the Bible, you have to address the starting presuppositions. You cannot simply abandon a Christian epistemology for the sake of trying to convince somebody to listen what you have to say. Can you tell me why, in the debate with Diaz, you told the audience it is most reasonable to understand the variety of passages you presented? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, at the time of that debate, I wasn't as convinced as I am now of the view. Uh, and second of all, uh, I do think that while I am certain of what these views, uh, of, what the, my, of what these texts teach, uh, I recognize that unlike God and his word, I'm fallible. And so I recognize the possibility that I'm wrong. I see. Did you lay all your cards out on the table in that debate? Um, concerning what death meant and why it is impossible to believe otherwise? Or did you use a probabilistic argument? Uh, I don't know that I don't know that I would agree with that dichotomy. I think that it might be a false one. I neither argued that it was probabilistic. I said this is what the text says, and here's what it means. Uh, if that can be shown to be false, I'd like to see it. Uh, but I, but on the other hand, I also don't argue uh, from impossibility because I think that assumes infallibility. I'm, I'm not infallible. I see. Uh, the strongest language I heard you use in that debate was all the biblical data on the topic favors the position I'm defending today. Mm-hmm. Why use such a mild mild expression of persuasion instead of words such as requires or, or necessitates? Again, I wasn't as convinced of the view then as I am now. And second of all, when I used the word favor there, I didn't mean that each individual text leans a little bit toward my view. What I said was that all of the texts uh, are contextually referring to the kind of thing that I'm talking about rather than the way they've historically been argued. I see. Okay. What did you mean by favor favor the position. What I mean is that interpreted within our context as well as within the analogy of scripture, what is being spoken of is what I'm talking about final punishment is rather than uh, what historically his interpreters have argued that they refer to. So for example, um, it's often argued that uh, Isaiah 66:24 is referring to living bodies, but which are being eaten away by worms. Now, granted, that's shifted a little bit nowadays, and people are beginning to take a more metaphorical view. But nevertheless, that's how that's been argued. What I've demonstrated, what I've, okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's fine. Um, scripture affirms that God's word is truth. If one's position only favors truth, it seems to be saying that it resembles the truth, not that it is true. 
What does it mean to be an accurate handle of the, of the word of truth, a diligent, unashamed workman? Uh, I, I'm not sure that I understand your question. If, if what you're asking me is, uh, am I doing scripture a disservice by saying that texts favor a position but that I could be wrong, um, then, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I understand that I'm fallible and I could be wrong. But that doesn't mean that what I'm saying is that, oh, there's a 55% chance that this text refers to what I'm talking about. No, in every case, contextually and within the context of the analogy of Scripture, it's talking about what I'm talking about. I see. So why would you use favor instead of um, instead of necessitate if your view is actually that strong? Because, again, I was not as convinced then as I am now. And second of all, because I wasn't using the word favor to indicate that there was a 55% chance or so that my understanding was true. What I was saying is that in their context, interpreted in their context and within the analogy of scripture, they teach what I'm talking about. But again, I could be wrong. I don't think that doubt is the same as recognizing one is in, one is fallible. I see. So <clears throat> when we're looking at the text of scripture, are we to consider the text of scripture as the same kind of question as whether there's a black cat in the closet? In the sense of every statement in scripture being having uh, being true and corresponding to reality, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, can we can we go look in the closet to see whether whether the text of scripture means something? No. Okay. Um, can we just know? Is it possible to have? utter complete certainty about anything that you know uh yes i think that's possible but but again i just want to reiterate that being utterly certain is not the same as saying that it is impossible uh, that the contrary is impossible i see um so are we actually to argue on probabilistic grounds then because what you seem to be saying is that we can only argue um argue by probability, not by whether things are or are not true. No, that's not at all what I've argued in the least. In fact, I've rejected that uh, assertion a number of times. What I've said is that the scriptures that I've cited, interpreted in their local context and within the analogy of scripture, have a meaning that lines up with the meaning that I've argued, and I've yet to be shown why we should understand those differently. On the other hand, I recognize that I am fallible. And so until it can be shown to me uh, that, that, that I'm wrong about those things, I recognize I'm, I'm fallible and I could be wrong. Okay. Um, when you talked earlier about, um, about uh, there being a time when God did not show mercy, are you actually asserting that God changed in between one time and another? No. Once again, like, like K. Scott Oliphant said, when we talk about mercy and wrath and, and some other uh, certain attributes, we're not talking about uh, who God is intrinsically. We're talking about extrinsic expressions of other intrinsic attributes like goodness, for example. So when, we say, when I say that God has not always been merciful, that doesn't mean I mean that God changed. What I mean is that when creation came about and when the first sin happened, God's expression of, that, of, of his goodness took on a certain form vis-a-vis his creation. So why is God uh, spoken of as um, God is merciful in the same way that he's spoken about um, as God is, is, is eternal? Because if somebody expresses mercy, you can say he's merciful. That doesn't mean that, his, that he is intrinsically uh, merciful. So doesn't that actually throw... Um, all the other arguments for God being intrinsically something under the bus if you use the same. 
No, not at all. I mean, if if I say that uh, God is infinite or eternal, if I say that at some point he stopped being eternal, well, then by definition, he's uh, not eternal in any way. So I think that there are attributes which are intrinsic and which cannot be said to have not been a quality of his being prior to creation, uh, but there are others which are expressions extrinsically of attributes that he is intrinsically. Okay, so when God um, is acting mercifully, that he, God is not um, actus purus in that sense. Well, I'm not familiar enough with the definition of actus purus to be able to respond in that way, but what I would say is that uh, whereas uh, certain of God's attributes, I think it was Oliphant who, who said, uh, ask yourself, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I've got the whole text of the of, of the text that I'm referring to here in front of me, but I'm not going to try to dig, to, it, to, to dig through it to find what I'm looking for. I understand. But, but he said something to the effect of, ask yourself if God could possibly, could God be God and yet not be one of these attributes? Now, so take justice, for example. Uh, uh, God could not be God and yet be uh, unjust at some point. Okay. However, if mercy is by definition something that is expressed to a creation, then by definition, uh, then, then he could not be mercy prior to creation and yet he could still be good uh, and so therefore intrinsically be good but extrinsically mer- merciful once creation requires mercy. Okay, by what standard could God be God in one and not be God in another? Because you're making the differentiation between mercy and justice, but it seems to be rather arbitrary. Well, whether it's arbitrary or not, I can't answer. Uh, again, Oliphant, Grudem, and many other theologians have made this distinction. Uh, I'll, I'll let you look to them for that answer. I, I actually disagree with um, Oliphant and Grudem there for the same reasons I've been telling you. Um, the Though... The reason I'm asking uh, is because it seems to be... Yeah, go ahead, Dee. that's uh, it. Okay, yeah, I, I hate interrupting, but you're that's out fine. of time. Um, all right, now, um, excuse me one moment, I'm just reorientating my screen here. It is now uh, Chris's turn for 15 minutes of cross-examination of Joshua. So whenever you're ready, Chris. Thanks, Dee. Okay, uh, Joshua, when we first started emailing one another, uh, you told me, quote, that you, sorry, you told me that you, quote, agree down the line with Gil's comments on the subject in his divinity, unquote. Is that still correct? As far as I, as I know, yes. Okay, in chapter two of book seven of the immortality of the soul, Gil mm-hmm. writes, quote, persecutors cannot kill the soul, that returns to God that gave it. He could, indeed, annihilate it if he would, unquote. Since you agree with Gill down the line, do you agree that God could annihilate the soul? If he would, yes. Great. So, however we understand God's attributes, simplicity and wrath and so forth, he has the freedom and power to annihilate the wicked. Is that correct? Uh, if, if he would, correct. Great. Okay, so he has the freedom and power. Now, in your roundtable podcast, you said that death, quote, is a corruption of life. It is a lesser form of life. It is a life that is imperfect, unquote. Do you, do you stand by that? Sure. Okay. In that same book and chapter, Gill writes, quote, There are various sorts of death, a spiritual or moral death, an eternal death, and there is a natural death, such as of the body, which the soul is not capable of, unquote. Do you agree? Of course, there's all sorts of death. Great. He also says, quote, The soul is immortal. It is not capable of death. That is, in a natural and proper sense, it is capable of dying in a figurative sense, a moral or spiritual death, unquote. That's one of the sorts of death he lists, as I just quoted him as saying. Do you agree with Gill, then, that this is not death proper, but rather a figurative use of natural death? Uh, what he's saying is that it's a, um, that it is not death as in the mortal sense, because spirits are not mortal. Okay, so, so what is, what is, is a, go ahead. So what does proper mean, as Gil uses it there? And what does figurative mean? 
um, just like you're talking about theology proper, you're talking about death as com- as um, as precisely understood. Death has a wide variety of uh, senses, but it's not talking about death as in um, the mortal um, bodily death. Okay. Because obviously spirit is not body. Now, Gil says that the death of the physical body is the natural and proper, according to his words anyway, uh, definition of death. Does a, does a corpse have, quote, a corruption of life, a lesser form of life, a life that is imperfect, unquote? Uh, a corpse is the, uh, is corruption. That's what, that's what the corpse is. Uh-huh. Is it yeah. alive? It has been separated from, from the soul. Is a, is a corpse alive? Not anymore, no. Great. So if physical death is the natural and proper sense of death, or precisely speaking of mortal death or whatever, and if it's used figuratively when speaking of moral and spiritual death, uh, what is the primary meaning of death? Or is there a primary meaning of death if a corpse is dead and doesn't have any life? Because the um, the, the corpse has um, corrupted to the point of... Uh, to the point of no, no longer being active, but the soul, which is separated from it, um, the the two cannot exist. Um, the the body cannot exist separately of the spirit. So when a body is there, it doesn't exist. When a body is, what do you mean with a body? You, 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 what, you, what you just said is that a body separated from a spirit cannot exist. Um, a body separated from the soul um, cannot. Um, cannot live. It cannot um, have activity. Okay. Would it be fair to use a slightly different word from your corruption language that, according to your view, uh, death is a deprivation of life or, or a certain... Um, it has some less amount of life, so to speak? Not necessarily. Um, there is a sense where it does, but um, when you're talking about in the overall picture, deprivation is only speaking as a part of that corruption. Okay. So does a corpse have any life at all? Not, not of itself, no. Okay. Does a corpse have any life? No. Okay. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Romans 6.2 asks, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Going on to say in verse 7 that he who has died is free from sin. Does this mean that when we are saved, uh, given life by Christ's death, that we somehow enter into a corrupted version of life? No, it means that uh, that sin has been put to death, and death has been put to death in us, as Owen argues. Okay, so then we didn't die; something inside us died. Sin. The the corrupt nature of the spirit is being killed, and is killed in the already and not yet. Okay, so so does the sinful nature go from some less corrupted form of life when it's not called dead to some? greater uh, corruption of life when it has been killed? No, it's using uh, the old man is being killed and the new man is taking taking its place. Okay, so when the old man inside of us is killed, it goes from a state of less corruption of life to more corruption of life, is that right? In some sense, yes. It, uh, because you'll see the new man, at, uh, the more that righteousness is is renewed in him, the more the old man will fight. And that's what Romans 7 is about. So the old man goes from a less corrupted version of life to a more corrupted version of life. 
so does that mean so what so once we have been glorified what happens to the old man the old man is uh the old man is um is put to death entirely Great. Now, Romans 7, 4, and 6 says, You were also made to die to the law. We have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. Galatians 2, 19 says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, does this mean that when we are saved, when we've died to the law, that we enter into some corrupted version of life with respect to the law? No, it means that the law no longer has any power over us. Death is rendered powerless in some sense. Why, why is the law powerless once we've died to it? Because we are covered in the blood of Jesus. Okay, uh, so have have we gone into a corrupted version of life with respect to the law? No, the old man has. Okay, uh, so then the law still has power over the new man. No, the law does not. Interesting. Okay, now Second Corinthians five fourteen to fifteen says that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Colossians 3.3 3 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Does this mean that we enter into a corruption of life? No, it means okay. that... Okay. Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5 says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Does this mean we are to put to the deeds of the body into a, a more corrupted version of life? It means that we are to... Um we are to put them in our past. We are to put them behind us. We are to kill them. Okay, so then would you agree, as you've, I think, repeatedly said, that there is a sense in which life comes to an end or can come to an end when we talk about something dying? Obviously, I've made this Obviously. Now, the book, of Genesis, the book of Genesis calls animals living beings. Do they have souls that live on after death? No, as I explained in, in, in Ecclesiastes, there's a difference between the two. Okay, now do dead animals uh, exist in a corrupted form of life? Yes, because they are put in slavery uh, on, on our behalf. No, I said, do dead animals exist in a corrupted form of life? Oh, dead animals. Um, they are they are taken back to the earth. Their, their souls go downwards. Okay, and are they in a corrupted form of life there? Are they living in some corrupted sense when they're dead? No, but they're okay. not the same. Now, uh, so, now Christ, when, when his body died... Uh, did his body go into a corrupted version of life? No, it did not okay. say corruption. Now, will the bodies of the wicked die in, in Gehenna, in the second death? Yes, forever. Uh, I said, did, will the bodies of the wicked die? Yes, forever. Great. They, are, they will be an eternal death. Okay, so I want to look at something here for a second. So you would disagree then when John Gill writes in his Doctrinal Divinity that the soul cannot be killed and that though the body rises to damnation and everlasting contempt, yet it dies not again? You would agree with him there? Or disagree with him, rather? Uh, in, in, in the context of that section, he's talking about being, uh, being finished, death being finished in the same way as in the first death, which it does not. It is in okay, the so is the, will the bodies of the wicked in Gehenna die in the way that Christ, the body, died? Will, will, they, will they finish the process of death in the way that Christ's body finished the process of death? Yes, it will take all of... Uh, it, we're, we're not talking about just the body, though, are we? I'm asking you a question specifically about their bodies right now. But you can't separate out, separate out the uh, um, body from the soul. Does, as, a body, does a dead body in the first death exist apart from the soul? Can you speak of a corpse apart from speaking of the soul? 
you can speak of the corpse apart from speaking right. of so the They've been separated. So will the bodies of the wicked in Gehenna, uh, bodies, will they, will they die completely in the way that Christ's body died completely on the cross? No. Great. Uh, will, God, exactly. will, will God extend to the damned in hell any blessings or any goodness? No, of course not. Great. Um, okay, so uh, the next question I have for you, I want to turn to my opening. Uh, it seems to me as though there was no argument made for the traditional view of hell in your opening, and I want to talk about some of the text. Um, wh- how do, what does Jude refer to when he refers to the eternal fire in Jude 7? He's talking about the punishment in the intermediate state. Okay. Uh, Jude first, Jude and Peter, before referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, first refer to other people, other human beings that died. Uh, wouldn't they experience the, the intermediate state as well? Of course Okay, so in what sense does Sodom and Gomorrah serve as any example uh, that's in any way extraordinary apart from every single other human being that has ever lived apart from Christ? Because they're all destroyed at once. Okay, well, wait a minute. You just said that the eternal fire there refers to the intermediate state. That's an ongoing process even to this day, correct? Of course, yeah. Great, okay. I'm not uh, saying destroyed in the same way that you're saying it. Okay, uh, so so then you would say, unlike Gil, eternal fire there does not refer to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in the temporal sense. Is that right? You would disagree with him. Gil says in both senses, if you've right. So at least in Gil one sense, all. so at least in one sense, eternal fire is a reference to the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Correct. Well, obviously, I'm not excluding the two. Great. Okay, so now the other place that eternal fire is used by Jesus uh, is when speaking of Gehenna. What is the depiction of Gehenna in the Old Testament? Uh, it's the Valley of Hinnom, obviously. Okay. What what kind of destruction is described, whether image, whether speaking in terms of imagery or whether in ter- terms of literally, what kind of destruction is described in Gehenna in the Old Testament? Uh, corruption, ruin, death, uh, perishing, dying, uh, the birds coming, rotting, smoldering corpses, all that. Great. Okay. So then uh, there's at least some senses in which the phrases eternal fire in both places, of two of the three places where they ref- they're, they're used in the New Testament, refer to being killed and rendered entirely lifeless in terms of at least the body, correct? In some sense, sure. Can you show me anywhere where eternal fire, that phrase by necessity, refers to something other than that? Uh, Besides Matthew 25. What, what, what do you mean besides that? Uh, what I mean, is there anywhere where the phrase eternal fire um, can contextually be demonstrated to refer to something other than uh, the eternal fire, that, the kind of eternal fire, the kind of destruction that was wrought by the eternal fire that came down out of heaven onto Sodom and Gomorrah, and which is described, uh, which describes Gehenna as a place where corpses are burned up in fire? No, because... Okay. So, <laughs> okay, so now, uh, you mentioned in your uh, rebuttal, I think it was, you, you talked about unquenchable. Um, what does uh, unquenchable refer to in uh, Ezekiel twenty forty seven, where it says, I'm about to kindle a fire in you, and it will consume every green tree in you, as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched. It means that they will have no resistance to it. Okay. Uh, is Gil wrong when he interprets it to mean what I interpret it to mean? Uh, why don't you say Gil, and I can tell you. Okay. Uh, let me scroll down here so I can find it. It's uh, commentary on Ezekiel twenty forty seven. He says, uh, the flaming, fi- flaming flame shall not be quenched, or the flame flame, or the flame of flame, signifying either the succession of those, these calamities one after another, or the force and strength of them which should not be abated until the ruin of the city was completed. So right. unquenchable there refers to an until it is in fact, does in fact go out. Do you disagree with his interpretation? I don't think that I disagree with him. I don't, I don't think he agrees with you. 
Okay. Uh, so then the next one, Jeremiah seventeen twenty seven. I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it will devour the places of Jerusalem and not be quenched. Do you disagree with Gil when he says that this means what I think it means? Would you like me to cite him again? If you want to cite him again, I still don't think says, that he agrees. And, and it shall not be quenched until it has utterly destroyed the city. Okay. okay. So, so do, you, do you disagree with him that it will be ex- it will go out once it's completed its job? We can just uh, we can just talk about the definitions and throw facts at each other, but what does it mean? Okay, in Second Kings twenty two seventeen, Gil says the decree for the destruction of Jerusalem was gone forth and not to be called back. Wait, sorry, I'm reading the wrong one. I apologize. Uh, commenting on Isaiah thirty four ten, he says it shall not be quenched night or day; it will long be burning and shall not be extinguished until it is utterly consumed. Do you disagree? Well, we can see there that's a lot like in Jude, isn't it? Is it not? They were there kept until uh, the final judgment. I mean, you have to distinguish between the immediate fulfillment and the eventual fulfillment. I mean, you, you can keep saying, do you disagree with Gil? But what's Gil talking about? Is he talking about the immediate or is he talking about the, the ultimate? There's okay. always two, cents to any, two senses to any prophecy. He's talking about the city there. It will long I be understand. burning and shall not be extinguished until his other... So is, there, so is that city still burning to this day? Is Edom still burning to this day? Like I said, there's an immediate fulfillment and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. Great. Okay, that's about all the time that I've got, so uh, we'll turn it over to rebuttals. Okay, sorry there, I had to find my uh, unmute button. All right, now we are going into the rebuttal periods. Uh, Joshua has a 10-minute rebuttal, so whenever you're ready, Joshua. Thank you. Um, We are coming back again, and we are going to talk about... Um, just some basic things that we keep saying. We keep seeing um, Mr. Date appealing to the facts as if they um, we're going to take some passage from Gill and it's only meaning that. But we're going to see in the New Testament that there is a reference to it. We'll see elsewhere in the Old Testament there is a reference to it. You can't just talk about the facts. If you just throw the facts at each other you don't talk about the meaning of the facts. I understand that I wasn't ready for a couple of them. That's fine. I, and I apologize on behalf of my listeners. However, the point that we're talking about is what are we to understand about these things? I mean, you can't just say, does it mean this? And then say, you know, it always has to refer to this empirical sense where it is burning up until only ashes remain. Um, we're talking about more than ashes, and we're talking about more than just a just a physical interpretation. You notice that um, Mr. Date keeps wanting to go back to um, the definitions of a the physical part of man, separate the, separating them out as if they can be separated out, but they can't. But the problem is, Mr. Date cannot talk about the separation out because he doesn't even know whether there can be separated out. He keeps affirming these things as if he has some basis for doing so, but he doesn't. Sure, he can talk about these people might believe it over here. That's not his position. It's not. He can't be talking about, you know, there's this thing that happens to the body, then there's this thing that happens to the soul. He doesn't know if there is a separation between the body and the soul. He doesn't know whether there is is even an intermediate state, but yet he's speaking as if there is at points here and there. Um, 
and then he's going back to the reduction of Jerusalem, the reduction of the city to ashes, the um, this empirical reductionism. But we don't want to see just the facts. We want to know what it means to say that. But the position he's coming from doesn't give us any intelligible basis for all the speaking of the separation between the body and soul. I mean, when you don't have the basis for speaking of these things, how are you to speak of them? When you don't have the um, presuppositional commitments which grant the preconditions for making these intelligible, you can't talk about these things. I mean, when you say that I'm taking this from the Bible, and then the Bible seems to be talking only about physical things, well, everything that he's argued so far is talking about physical things, but then he's giving us both views here, you know, interchangeably, as if there's no difference between the two, but there's a basic difference between the two. You can't say that there is no that you can't um, that you can separate out these two if you don't know that you can. You can't say that um, is this referring to this intermediate state or not um, when you don't even know whether there is an intermediate state. When you, you, where are you standing when you say that? You can be presenting other people's views all you want, but unless you have the position to stand on, you can't say anything about it. I mean, when we talk about the um, reliance on Greek philosophy, for instance, for instance um, as he uh, stated previously. Now, are you talking about Leucippus? The uh, atomistic philosophy where you know all matter is made up of atoms and that the natural world is composed of atoms in the void. You're talking about um, – or are you talking about the people that he was trying to make a composite of, um, uh, Heraclitus and Parmenides, um, where the former affirmed that all was changed, the latter that all change was illusion. I mean what are you dealing with as far as what we're taking it from? I mean if you say that the natural immortality of the soul is a Greek conception – which Greek conception? Which Greeks? They're hardly monolithic. I mean, you have Monus um, as far as uh, the forms over here, Plato's forms, the idealistic monism. Then you have the Monus like the um, – you have the Monus from the, uh, the more materialistic strains that would say that all is matter. Well, which Greeks are you talking about? How are you – where are you taking it from? You know, you can make the statements that there is these particular um, elements that you're taking from. When you talk about corruption of life, you can make any um, you can make anything sound bad if you do it in a particular way. Um, if you talk about, let's see. Um, In Calvin's Institutes, um, when you say that you don't know what the nature of man is, well, we can't say that Scripture does not affirm the nature of man. As Calvin says, the 
it's not without reason that the ancient proverbs so strongly recommended to man the knowledge of himself. It is dis- deemed disgraceful to be ignorant of things pertaining to the business of life. Much more disgraceful is self-ignorance, in consequence of which we miserably deceive ourselves in matters of the highest moment, and so walk blindfolded. So if you're agnostic to Doctrine X, given, uh, say, dualism or monism of the human nature, then you're either, one, wrong, as ignorance is inconsistent with Christianity, or two, denying the perspicuity of Scripture. Now, we can't say anything about Doctrine X if you don't know what the basis for Doctrine X is. You, you can't say anything that comes from Doctrine X. You, you just can't. I mean, when when we start talking about the nature of man or when we start pulling um, Old Testament verses about the gates of Jerusalem being reduced to ashes and that's, you know, the only thing that death means is this empirical reduction, what are you trying to talk about? What are you trying to say about the soul? What is the nature of the soul? What is the nature of death? What is the nature of all these things? Um, we can all go to particular areas, particular texts that we don't know where they're going to go. Um, there's no way of <laughs> there's no way of knowing where Mr. Date was going to go before this debate because Mr. Date didn't say anything uh, um, after the the debate proposition was advanced. I've done all of the talking up to here. So all I had was what he said before. But Mr. Date hasn't done any of this work before. So I'm just trying to pick up where where he's coming at me blind. That's fine. I understand that. There's nothing I can do about it. But in um, when we're talking about texts like Matthew 25, he hasn't dealt with what I've said about those texts. He hasn't dealt with my exegesis that I provided before the debate. Now, I've dealt with the exegesis he's provided before, but he just gave it again. Like, he gives, he gave Jude 7, again, almost the exact same way that he did before. But it says that they are kept under punishment for the final judgment. He hasn't dealt with Jude. He hasn't dealt with Second Peter. It is the intermediate state. But because he cannot affirm the intermediate state, he cannot affirm the nature of man... What can he say about that? He used the same argument that he did in the debate versus Diaz. Now, I don't know what else we can say since all he's doing is giving the same answer back again, but I'm not going to make the same argument that I've already made. There's no point to it. What I would like Chris to explain to us is what death means if it's only this rendering lifeless. What death means if you don't know what man is to die. If you don't know who, who, what man is, you can't tell us what it is for him to die. You can tell us what some dualist thinks over here, perhaps. You can tell us what some monist thinks over here, perhaps. But Mr. Date can't tell us what it means because he doesn't know what man is. He doesn't know what's going to happen to man after they die. He can just tell us what other people think happens to man after they die. He can't tell us what the second death is because he doesn't know what death is because he doesn't know what man is. I don't know what else to tell him. Um, hopefully, we'll have more material in the rebuttal that we can deal with, but I don't see what else we can say about it. And that's all I have.
Okay, thank you, Joshua. Now, Chris, you have 10 minutes for your second rebuttal. Thanks, Didi. There's so much I want to say. First of all, uh, this claim that he's not going to repeat his exegesis of the text here sounds an awful lot like that quote from the debate with James White where, uh, I don't remember who it was, I want to say Olson or somebody, said, uh, read my book for the answer to that. Well, no, we're, we're dealing with exegesis of the text here in this debate, and there are people who are going to listen to this debate who aren't going to want to uh, look through uh, hundreds of paragraphs of text. You know, hundreds of paragraphs of text don't necessarily indicate good exegesis. Uh, it could also indicate obfuscation, which is, I believe, exactly what Joshua has done thus far. If Joshua doesn't want to offer any exegesis of these texts today, then fine. That, that's certainly his prerogative. Uh, I, however, intend to do so. As for kept under punishment, I haven't dealt with it before now because Joshua didn't bring it up until now in the debate. I didn't bring it, mention it in my opening or the first rebuttal because he didn't bring it up in this debate. But I'll bring it up now. Uh, Adam Clark, he says that um, uh, <clears throat> that the phrase talks about, let's see here. I wish I'd had this pulled up in front of me in advance. Let me Let me... That's actually the wrong one. Here, here it is. James Burton Kaufman. From this, some have concluded that the fallen angels and other wicked beings are now suffering punishment, but Peter may well have used under punishment as a short form for under sentence of punishment. Uh, John Calvin also says, uh, to reserve the unjust, by this clause he shows that God so regulates his judgments as to bear the wicked for a time, but not to leave them unpunished. He goes on to say there is an emphasis in some parts uh, on, in the word reserve, as though he had said that they shall not escape the hand of God, but be held bound, as it were, by hidden chains, so that they may at a certain time be drawn forth to judgment. Uh, the participle, uh, reserved probably, though in the present tense, is yet to be thus explained, and they are reserved to be or kept, that they are reserved or kept to be punished, or that they may be punished, for he bids us to rely on expectation of the last judgment, so that in hope and patience we may fight till the end of life. So, uh, I'm not the only one who's expressing agnosticism as to the intermediate state, and there are multiple, uh, theologians besides the two that I've cited, and the third one that I so terribly tried to, the first one, uh, who recognize that keep under punishment may not have anything at all to do with the intermediate state. What we have to go by are the examples that are given. And the examples that are given are not examples of people suffering in the intermediate state. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, if an intermediate state exists, suffered the identical fate as everybody else, including the examples that had already been given. So they serve, they're completely ordinary and superfluous. On the other hand, if what's in view is God punishing in time, uh, then Sodom and Gomorrah, no, the, the, pre, the antediluvian people killed in the flood, the Israelites killed in the wilderness, these are all great examples of how uh, God punishes in time. And that's, in fact, how numerous theologians, uh, including John Gill, understand that eternal fire. Now, uh, Joshua said that he understands it in both senses. Well, that's true uh, a couple of decades after his commentary on the passage when he must have reflected upon it further. Uh, in his commentary, from what I couldn't recall, he only mentioned the one sense of the fire that came down from heaven. Uh, now, you know, my opponent says that he had no way to know where I was going to go. In, in a certain sense, that's entirely false. My opening is virtually a recapitulation of my previous one. Uh, but in a second sense, it, it's true that when it comes to responses to his arguments, he didn't know where I would go, and I hadn't told him where I would go, and there's a reason. He told me uh, that when I don't have an answer to something, I should spend the time to develop an understanding, and, and that's what I've done. Um, now, he claims that I haven't responded to his arguments, but the entire 10 minutes of my first rebuttal were a response to his arguments, and he claims that all I'm doing is uh, saying, well, here's what some other people believe. No, that's not true. I used what they believe to support what I claimed about those passages. Uh, he says that if, if somebody's agnostic as to the intermediate state, they can't talk about death at all. Well, that's absurd. Joshua himself uh, admits that a body that is dead is entirely absent of life, and Jesus says that what 
what will happen that what happens only to the body and the first death will happen to both body and soul in Gehenna by using a word destroy which everywhere in the synoptic gospels is a synonym for kill or slay uh, so it's very clear whether an intermediate state exists whatever happens to the soul in that period of time what will, the soul what will happen to the what happens to the body in the first death is what will happen to body and soul in the second and it's not based solely on Matthew 10:28 and it's not based solely on empirical understandings of imagery in the Old Testament in fact quite the contrary I repeatedly uh, emphasized in my opening statement that this is imagery that uh, and, and that whether it's interpreted whether it's to be interpreted figuratively figuratively or literally they all s- still communicate the same thing the utterly finally completely consuming wrath of God um, you can't simply say that I'm referring to uh, reading them in an empirical sense alone when I've in fact demonstrated that that's not the case at all uh, besides my case isn't based solely on that it's also based on uh, uh, Paul's eternal destruction in Second Thessalonians 1.9 and I showed how he's hearkening to the imagery of uh, Isaiah 66 so the eternal destruction there which is an identical phrase to what John Gill and Jonathan Edwards both used to refer to the earthly temporal destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in time that came to an end is the same it describes the same kind of thing that's going to happen to the wicked uh, in final punishment whether that's literally by fire or whether it's by some other means uh, you know we could, we could speculate till the cows come home and, and he hasn't addressed revelation at all despite his saying on his blog many times that he would uh, I do know that in a, in, in a um, conversation in a chat channel, channel he once said that uh, that basically his response to the imagery that I've cited in the Old Testament and and in the unquenchable fire passages in the New Testament that that, that same response applies to revelation well, well that's not true uh, the author of revelation is is uh, hearkening to uh, imagery in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel 7, the, the beast is identical to the fourth beast uh, with, uh, with elements of the first three. And the interpreter interprets the imagery as meaning that the, the dominion of the beast will come to an end. Doesn't have anything to do to, have, doesn't have anything to do at all with the people that comprise that institution at all. It has to do with the dominion that they have. It's taken away and it's given to the reigning saints. And that's exactly what John sees happening when the, when the beast is thrown into the fire. The dominion is given to the reigning saints. And as I, and I, I'd like to point out that for those of us who are preterists, we should really take that seriously. We believe, or at least many of us believe, that the beast was thrown into the fire, symbolically speaking, uh, in, in the first century. So if we're to understand that passage, as many people do, that the uh, that certain individuals are uh, going to suffer eternally in the lake of fire, well, that's happening right now. So right now, the whatever individuals are alleged to comprise the beast in that imagery are suffering bodily and spiritually in fire somewhere, or, or literal or Im- uh, symbolic fire, whatever. Uh, they've been they're doing that now, even though the resurrection hasn't happened yet, even though the judgment hasn't happened yet, and they're not going to be judged in that final judgment since. The imagery of Revelation says that only the, those that are in death and Hades are going to be resurrected out of it. As preterists, we have to understand that the beast is imagery depicting the dominion of a kingdom and not the individuals that comprise it, or else we're forced to, to affirm what I think is darn near heretical, which is that people are bodily and spiritually suffering eternal conscious torment right now and will not be part of the final judgment. Um, gosh, there's so much more. Uh, in the line of questioning, um, I demonstrated, and, and, he, and Joshua even affirmed, that at least in one sense, unquenchable fire repeatedly refers to a fire which reduces to remains and ceases burning. Now, he can claim that it has some other sense. He certainly hasn't demonstrated it exegetically or theologically. Uh, but the point is this. If, if we have myriad, well, not myriad, if we have many uses of unquenchable fire that, that refer to a wrath that completely consumes and then comes to an end, then we have no reason to argue from that language that it also refers refers to some sort of uh, suffering in the inner, uh, in, in, in forever in the eternal state. Uh, the theological argument from 
wrath. I mean, gosh, it was so difficult. Now, this may be my own uh, simplicity here. Excuse the pun. The, the argument that, that Joshua has given, how wrath and mercy, uh, I'm somehow mixing the, the first circle and the second circle. Look, if, if, if he, didn't, he didn't say that, that the objects of God's mercy continue to experience his mercy for eternity. Uh, what he said was that God, by virtue of being infinite, his mercy and wrath are infinite, uh, well, that's great. If 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 uh, if wrath expressed in time qualifies as God being wrathful eternally, well, then it doesn't have to go on for eternity in, for, in order for God to be eternally wrathful. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, you know, I think his treatment of Matthew ten twenty eight was, or sorry, Matthew twenty five forty six was rather weak, particularly since. Um, it's rather novel. Uh, I've never seen anybody argue from that particular perspective. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. Uh, but it does mean that, um, you know, he's accused me of holding a view that no other annihilationists have ever had. Well, uh, I, I would posit that that argument would apply equally to, to him, apparently. Uh, you know, he hasn't demonstrated any unintelligibility uh, or... Uh, inability to understand any scripture at all. He just repeated, repeats it over and over again. Romans 8.30, he, he says that uh, when we talk about glorified, that somehow um, uh, we're being novel and ad hoc in uh, understanding that the glorified there is a prolepsis. Uh, well, I'm just going to read Douglas Moo really briefly here. Uh, in the epistle to the Romans, he says, most interpreters conclude probably rightly that Paul is looking at the believer's glorification from the standpoint of God, who has already decreed that it should take place. While not yet experienced, the divine decision to glorify those who have been justified has already been made. The issue has been settled. In the footnotes, he cites Turton and others saying, quote, close to this idea that the tense, like the Hebrew perfect, has a proleptic force. Paul is so certain that the glorification will take place that he writes as, as if it already had, unquote. And as for Joshua's claim that I, uh, that therefore I must, I must deny regeneration and so forth, I've already demonstrated conclusively that that's not the case in my first rebuttal. Um, gosh, as for death, you know, he, he says that I, I just report the facts and don't address what it means. Well, I demonstrated the falsehood of that allegation. In my first rebuttal, I, uh, I demonstrated that uh, death, uh, and I quoted several theologians, many of whom uh, uh, my opponent respects, as uh, demonstra- in order to demonstrate that physical death is the curse that resulted from the fall, as Paul says in Romans 5.12, and that it's used figuratively or proleptically to refer to people in the here and now. Anyway, that's about all the time I've got, so I'm looking forward to the next round of cross-examination. Okay, um, thank you, Chris, and I guess we're up to our next break. All right, that was our first round of cross-examination and our second rebuttals. In the next episode, you'll get to hear the final part of the debate, which was our second round of cross-examination, closing statements, and listener-submitted questions. Uh, Until then... (laughs) 